In our first reading, the Lord says that he shall banish the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The warrior's bow shall be banished, and he shall proclaim peace to the nations. The messianic expectation of the Jews is that the Messiah would protect them from their enemies. Israel is right in the nexus of three continents. It's right between Africa, Asia, and Europe. And so everybody all the time is just going through that area called the Levant. And so the people of Israel were just constantly being assaulted and conquered by their far more powerful neighbors. And so there's this deep prayer that they would be protected from war. But the Jews of Jesus' time, and we know this because of questions that his apostles asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Or we know this from um, uh, documents from the Qumran community who talk about having a political messiah. But the expectation is that the way in which the messiah would prevent war in Jerusalem or prevent war in Israel is by conquering all of the neighboring nations. By going and waging more powerful war, and by waging more powerful war, then the chariot and the horse and the warrior's bow would be banished. But you can see how this is illogical, how somehow the answer to war is more war, that if I want to get rid of war, I have to be better at war. Because then, the horse and the chariot and the warrior's bow, they're never going to depart from Jerusalem. Because it becomes an arms race, and Jerusalem becomes more powerful, and the neighbors become more powerful, and it's this never-ending cycle of war. Instead, how does the first reading talk about the peace? Well, it says, Your king shall come, not riding on a war horse, not riding in a chariot, but meek and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. The king is not going to come as a hero of war. The king is going to come as somebody who is meek, who eschews war altogether. Somebody who is willing to let himself be crucified. And even after that, and even after coming back from the dead, does not seek retribution against those who have harmed him. This is the kind of king who is going to banish the chariot and the horse and the bow from Israel. To generalize this, when we are dealing with the corruption of humanity, the problems that our race faces, particularly sins against our neighbor, the answer is not more sins against our neighbor. That's not how it works. The answer to war is not more war. That's not to negate our need to defend ourselves. The church has always said we have the right to defend ourselves. But the answer to war is not more war. This is very much what St. Paul is talking about in our second reading, when he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Which is to say, if you're dealing with problems of the flesh problems of this material world, problems of the corruption of humanity, the answer is not more corruption. So, an example, I don't think anybody would disagree that democratic politics, which is to say politics in our democracy, 
they have gotten very bitter that as we're looking to get that 50.5% of the vote, we divide and we yell and we tear down. And our politicians are very good at getting a soundbite, making the other person look bad. So if you're on the losing side of that in an election cycle, and you're saying, oh man, I only got the 49.5%, I have to do better, what do you think the answer to that is? Is it more division? Is it more yelling, more tearing down, more sound bites? Is it more things of the flesh? Or is it something else? Are we going to live by the flesh and die by the flesh? Or are we going to figure out what the Spirit of God is? Again, back to the war example, who could have predicted? Even with this prophecy from Zechariah, who could have predicted that the Messiah would bring peace through a cross? Nobody but the prophets who are attentive to the Spirit of God. If we want to solve the great plagues of humanity, we're going to do so with the creativity of God, with ways that we cannot right now conceptualize. But it's going to require that we lay aside the problems of the flesh. We lay aside the worst impulses of our nature. We can't contemplate peace without war until we lay aside war. We cannot contemplate politics without division until we lay aside division. Somehow the Spirit of God wishes to heal us, but we have to pay attention to Him first and not our worst impulses. Another example, housing crisis. Depending on what side of the political aisle you're on, you will attribute it to one of two things. I think both are true. But one, it's really hard to build new houses today and to find affordable housing for those that already exist. Because, one, government regulation is off the charts. The permitting for new construction is almost as expensive as the building materials. Which is not to say we shouldn't try to protect people and make sure that living spaces are dignified, but if the problem is too much government, the answer to the housing crisis is not more government. Similarly, if we can't find places to live because all the property is purchased by abstract landowners, not the person who's like, I got one house, I got to rent it out, I know my tenants personally, I try to take care of them, but large corporations who just buy up a lot of land and then rent it out to folks and are always looking at the profit line. Well, if the problem of capitalism with land ownership is that too few people own too many of the resources, and if that's why people can't find affordable housing, then the answer to too much capitalism is not more capitalism. Somehow, the solution is not the problems of the flesh that have gotten us here in the first place. The solution is going to be found in the Spirit of God. Or as the first reading puts it at the end, His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Somehow the solution to all of our societal ills is in the dominion of God. His spirit being operative. God being in control. I'd like to offer one possible interpretation about what that might look like. Christians are personalist. One way to understand all of our moral theology 
is to say that it starts with the individual person. We have, I think, one of the most beautiful theological systems that exists in the world. I think we have thought things out to such an extent that you could put Catholicism against any world philosophy or religion and we would blow them out of the water with our consistency and the depth of our thought. But, particularly with individual morality, even though we have this incredible moral system, we don't think of morality as a system. We think of it as people. We look to the person in front of us when we're asking what the right thing to do is. And so we might say that the dominion of God, or eschewing the flesh and living by the Spirit, means having encounters with other people. Saying that, okay, this is the person in front of me, what is best for them? If we're trying to address homelessness, for example, we might say that we don't start with an economic theory or a political theory. We start by hanging out at Hope House or volunteering for community meal. Because in those places, you actually encounter the people who are affected by the problem. You learn about lives, and you learn about stories, and you can see the Spirit of God in you and in them, but also communicating between the two of you. Our Trinitarian theology suggests that the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. And so when two people are together in a room, the Holy Spirit can be the bond of love between them as well. But you have to have two people. It can't be me and a system, me and an abstraction, me in a ballot box. It has to be me and a person. And there I will find the Spirit of God, and there I will see the dominion of God, and in that moment, maybe, just maybe, the Lord will speak to me about a different way, a different solution, something that's not just a system or an abstraction, something that's not just the ways of the flesh that have failed us so far. Or, similarly, if we're asking how to serve the poor and the vulnerable, or, and this is an overlapping group, how to serve immigrants. Well, maybe we don't start with our favorite news organizations, but we start with the Agape program and volunteering for them. They do education. They talk about these things with the high school and middle school youth that come to us all summer. But every Wednesday, they're in Linden distributing food to 500 farm worker families. 500 farm worker families. This is a group that encounters the people that they're talking about. Because they know that first and foremost, it's that conversation, that moment together, that they're going to see the Spirit of God. And it will be revealed to them what the dominion of God looks like. Not just their ideas or their assumptions, but the person. It's very easy for us to be overwhelmed by the problems that we face in the world with questions of social justice, with questions that we're looking to protect the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. It's hard to know what to do. And I would say this, the Lord valorizes, he celebrates littleness in the gospel today. When he says that the Father has hidden things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little ones, one way we can see that is he's talking about this personal encounter. The wise and the learned are trying to think of the whole system. 
What are we supposed to do? And they write academic papers on it, and they study in the universities about it. But the little one just looks at the person in front of them and says, what am I supposed to do? If you want to build on that a little bit, love, and God, love of God and love of neighbor, right? Well, why would the little ones do better in that system? A child, and he's not talking about children here, he's talking about people who are childlike. A child follows their parents without reservation. Okay, Mom. Okay, Dad. We're getting in the car? Great. We're going to this place? Great. They trust them. I would always fall asleep in the car as a child because my trust of my parents was so incredible. I didn't need to know where we were going. Oh, we're in the car? Okay. We're going. Little ones trust without reservation. We trust that God has an answer to all of our problems. That His Spirit will lead us to a solution that's not just more flesh, not more ways of the flesh, but that somehow His Spirit is going to show us a new and better way. Meekness in the face of war, for example. We trust Him. But then little ones are also very much focused on what's in front of them. So if you ask a kid to clean their room, sometimes they become overwhelmed. Ah, it's too much, and they get distracted, and they want to do... So parents will say, okay, start by picking up five things. You can do that. You can count to five. Here are your fingers. Start by picking up five things. And the little one is able to engage in that better. Well, we're all little ones, and we have a lot of things that are facing us. But don't ask about the big thing. Don't try to clean up society like you're cleaning your room. Try to meet somebody. Try to have an encounter with somebody. And maybe it's the people we've talked about so far. You know, maybe it's a landlord getting to know their tenants. Maybe it's just you getting to know your neighbors. Maybe it is the homeless at Community Meal, or the poor at Hope House, or the immigrant and the marginalized with agape. But maybe it's somebody else in your life. Somebody that you haven't had a conversation with. Somebody who looks like they're having a down day or a down season. Have an encounter with someone. And then, listen to the Spirit of God. He will direct us to new and creative ways of helping others. Because He's the one who does the work. He's the one who knows us and loves us and cares about us. All we have to do is to be little ones to meet the person in front of us, to listen, to accompany, to pray, and to love.